Good morning. How do you do with unexpected visitors? Are you usually okay with it? Not so great. Sometimes it can go both ways, right? You know, if you think of uh, the seminal Christmas movie, uh, Christmas Vacation, you know, when Cousin Eddie shows up, that's an unexpected visitor. I don't think Clark was super happy with in the movie, but I could be wrong. Um, It got me thinking, though, about unexpected visitors. And 20 years ago, um, my nephew was born in November of 2003, which means he's 20, which means I'm old, which is not good. Also, he's wearing a mustache right now, and it's just wrong. I don't know why I threw that out there. I just thought you needed to know that. Um, not that mustaches are bad, but on him, it is. Anyway, that's Peyton. Um, so the first Christmas, though, since they just had him, I think his birthday is November 23rd, if I remember right. And so they just had him. So he wasn't, they weren't planning on coming up to Indy. They lived down in Florida, and they weren't planning on coming up um, to spend Christmas with us. And we were okay with that. And, but um, that, was the, that was what they told my mom and dad. They called me, John, John called me, my brother, and, and he's like, hey, we want to come up. We want to surprise mom and dad. So we're going to fly up on Christmas Eve, and, and we want to make it a big surprise and stuff. I was like, done. We can do that. So what I did was uh, I was traveling at the time, so I just said that one of my uh, people that I worked with needed a ride from the airport. So I had to leave wherever we were early, go up to Indy Airport, grab them. Um, this was also the time of uh, not long, you know, it's 2003, so it's not long after uh, 9-11, so security's still pretty tough. We're trying, you know, they didn't, this is their first kid. I didn't have kids, obviously. Um, so we're trying to get the, the car seat into my car, and the security people are like, let's go, let's keep moving. We're like, hang on, man, we're trying to s- secure this child. <laughs> they didn't seem to care, but we got moving and everything came home. So mom and dad, I don't know if they were over at my aunt and uncle's, but I, th- I think that's where they were. If Obviously, if anything of this is wrong, they'll tell you when you leave. Um, but we got back. They weren't home yet. So we turned the lights off, turned the Christmas tree lights were on, and we threw Peyton in his car seat under the tree. <laughs> and then we went and hid. And so they get home, and... Peyton's like making noises and stuff. He's cooing or whatever babies do. And my dad is like, is that a baby under the tree? <laughs> it was unexpected, but they were very welcome. You know, they were very happy to see Peyton and John and Angie. They were okay to see John and Angie. They really were happy to see Peyton and everything. But unexpected visitors, that can be a, a big thing during Christmas time. Um, and we're in our Christmas series, Behold, Our Savior is Here. And what we're doing in this series is we're looking at different characters in the narrative of the Christmas story. And so last week we looked at two different characters and and real people, of course, but um, we were looking at the announcement, birth announcements of both John the Baptist and of Jesus. And so we saw Zechariah, who's John the Baptist's father, and we saw his skeptical reaction to when an angel showed up and appeared to him as he was working in the temple in Jerusalem. We saw that he didn't really believe when Gabriel came and said, you're going to have a child even as you are, uh, you and your wife are, are old, older in age. And 
you know, that was his, his reaction, right? It was skeptical. John, or, uh, Zechariah said, well, how can I be sure of this? Because I'm old and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I'm telling you, this is what's going to happen. And, and that's what does happen. And he says, but because of your unbelief, you're not going to be able to speak until it all comes about. And so for nine months, Zechariah couldn't speak. But then we had the other person. We had Mary, the mother of Jesus, this teenage girl who had a very different reaction when Gabriel showed up and spoke to her. He came and he said, greetings, you who are highly favored. You're going to have a child as well. And Mary's reaction a little bit different. You know, she was really wanting to know, like, okay, how's this going to happen? She, that's what she asked. You know, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And she had a faithful reaction because after Gabriel explained it, she said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you've said. And that's what we looked at last week. This morning, we're going to look at actually Jesus' birth, the story there, and two reactions to this birth. We're going to look at one of the highest people in the land in the king and some of the lowest people in the land in shepherds. So if you've got your Bibles, you want to open them to Luke chapter 2. That's going to be where we're at for a little bit. Although we will go to Matthew as well. And so we're going to read first the account of Jesus' birth, Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. What Jeff read. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. All right, so the first person we're going to look at is Herod. Herod is the king of Judea. Judea is the southern part of Israel where Jerusalem is, where Bethlehem is. And just to give some historical context on Herod, his father was appointed the uh, procurator, which is basically like a financial officer of Judea by Julius Caesar. We all know Julius Caesar, right? If you don't know Julius Caesar, go read. Um, or get on Wikipedia or something, I don't know. Uh, anyway, they divided his territories into four smaller territories, and one of those was Galilee, and that went to Herod, his son. Herod was made king by Mark Antony. Mark Antony was one of the conspirators that killed Julius Caesar, and uh, he hung out with uh, Cleopatra a lot in Egypt. So Herod tried to get on the good side of the Jews. He really was trying to be on their good side. He was a builder. He commissioned a lot of buildings, settlements, etc. to be built. And he built a temple in a city on the north of the Sea of Galilee called Paneum. Here's a map of it here. Um, it's actually, we know it as Caesarea Philippi, as it's known later in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. And that's where Jesus asked his disciples, you know, who do you say that I am? So see the Sea of Galilee there, beautifully handwritten um, note that I put on. And then uh, Caesarea Philippi is just uh, north there in the circle. Um, one, of the, one of the big things that he did, though, was he, Herod commissioned the build, rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. 
And so here's a picture of a model that you can see in Jerusalem itself. And so that is a, a model of the Temple Mount and where the, the, the temple is the tall structure there. So that, that temple actually was pretty big comparatively to Solomon's temple. And so I think I've got a picture of, yeah. So there's a, the, the newer temple, Herod's temple there is on the right. Solomon's temple is on the left. And you can kind of see just the size difference in what Herod put on, what Herod built versus the original temple that Solomon had built. So Herod went above and beyond probably what he needed to, but that's what he did. One other thing that he did was he built a palace for himself. There's a picture of that. Again, this is that same model that you can see in Jerusalem. And uh, it's a pretty nice little palace there. I'd say little. It's not really that little. Um, you can see, like, up in the top right corner, that's the temple mount up at the top. And uh, so this is a little bit smaller than the whole temple complex, but not much. Not much. Anyway, he tried to get on the good side of the Jewish people. He didn't really achieve that. They didn't really like him. There are a few reasons for that. First, he was only part Jewish, and so they weren't real thrilled about that. But also, he made pagan temples to other gods in other cities. Now, Herod's also a pretty suspicious man. He had sons for multiple wives who were plotting to overthrow him. And so what did he do? He killed all of those sons who were plotting to overthrow him and at least one of the wives, which that seems bad. Um, and what we're going to see is we're going to see this suspiciousness kind of show up again, especially in Matthew chapter 2. That's where we're going to turn to now, Matthew 2 verse 1, where it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So we've got these magi, we call them wise men sometimes, right? They, they're coming from the east, and they're looking for Jesus, looking for the Messiah. And then Herod hears about this, and he's not super thrilled about it, it seems. And since Herod isn't really thrilled about it, all of Jerusalem doesn't seem to be thrilled about it. It says that he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem was also disturbed with him. And and I think you could imagine that, right? If you have a king who seems very eager to kill people, that that might disturb some folks if he is also disturbed. But he's got these chief priests, he's got teachers of the law, they're trying to figure out where the Messiah was to be born. So they take this passage from the book of Micah. It's actually Micah 5.2 that they quote there. And then it continues in Matthew 2, verse 7, where it says, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. 
So Herod calls in the Magi, and he tells them that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. You know, you should go look for him. He wants them to come back and tell him where the child is so he can go worship him. I don't think he really wants to go worship him. I mean, why not? I mean, he's the king. He's suspicious. He's killed his own sons and wife to stay in power. But that's, that's the point, right? Like, he's got this power, and he does not want to let it go. And he makes a plan to find out where the Messiah is born so he can have him killed. We continue in verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. All the Magi wanted to do is worship this newborn king. And so they follow the star until it rests over the house where the family is. And then the Magi are warned not to go back to Herod, to go back home a different route. And so what happens to that? We skip to verse 16 where it says, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Herod has all the boys in Bethlehem, two years old and younger, killed. Which is awful. And that should tell you what kind of person that he is. What's really ridiculous about all of this is that he was sick and he died not long after. So the power that he was so desperately clinging to was gone in an instant anyway. Even in death, though, that didn't stop him from doing some really dumb things because he issued two commands to be given on the day of his death. One was to execute recently imprisoned Jewish elders so that the people would mourn after he died. And the second was to execute another son, Antipater, That's Herod's reaction. Not a great one. It's the king of Judea. But let's go from the mightiest in the land to some of the lowest, the meekest in the land. Those are shepherds. For this, we'll go back to Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Shepherds in ancient times, they're not considered real well. Like they're kind of the lowest rung on the social ladder, unfortunately above women, but still kind of down there. And the work that they had, it kept them away from the temple and the synagogue because they were considered unclean, ceremonially unclean. Back in the Old Testament, in the law, the Israelites were given a set of rules about clean, being clean and unclean. And in its basic definition, an unclean person was unacceptable to God and would need to be ritually cleansed through sacrifice before they were able to approach God. So they really weren't allowed near in the temple. One pastor said, in general, shepherds were dishonest and unclean according to the standards of the law. They represent the outcasts and sinners for whom Jesus came. And it's these shepherds who were visited by an angel of the Lord. 
Verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So the angel appears to them. They're terrified. And he says to the shepherds the same as what Gabriel said to both Zechariah and Mary, do not be afraid. And if you missed last week's, you got to remember, angels aren't the soft images that we picture. They're kind of terrifying, right? In a correspondence, which is recorded in in the book Letters to an American Lady, C.S. Lewis wrote this about angels. He says, I believe no angel ever appears in Scripture without exciting terror. They always have to begin by saying, fear not. So that's what the angel says. He says, don't be afraid. I bring you good good news of great joy for all people. And he tells the shepherds about the birth of the Messiah and where to find them. Then a whole bunch of angels show up, and they're praising God, which I think would terrify you even more. Verse 15, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So what's the big deal here? Well, shepherds were considered some of the lowest people in the nation of Israel, and yet God gave them the honor and the privilege to be the first to hear the news that the Messiah was born. And remember, everybody's waiting for the Messiah. Everybody is waiting for the Savior. Not, the, not just these guys, but these guys got the chance not just to hear the wonderful news, but to do something far more special. In verse 16, it says, so they hurried off. And found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning about what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in their inner heart. So not only do they get to get the good news that the Messiah has been born, they get to see him. They get to go and, and meet him and his parents, and, and, and they get to tell them what happened. Like, hey, these angels, shut up. What's their reaction, though? Verse 20, it says, The shepherds return, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So they went back, and they praised and glorified God, and they spread the word. They told people the good news. These shepherds, these lowly shepherds, were the first to hear that the child had been born, and then they're kind of the first to get to share that news with others. When we look at these two, the king and the shepherds, you know, we see the highest person in the land, the king, and we see him afraid to lose his power. We see the lowest person, just rejoice and, and be happy. Jesus didn't come for the proud, but he came for those who would humble themselves to the true king. You ever have those situations where you don't feel super useful? 
Like for me, it could be doing work on cars or something. Unless it's changing a light bulb, I can do that. Um, maybe checking the air pressure in my tire. But outside of that, I'm not super useful around cars. Um, or, you know, I like computers, but if you ask me to help on a computer that's a Windows machine, I'm just going to tell you to reboot it, and then you're on your own from there. <laughs> or a Sam, if you have a Samsung phone, I won't even tell you that. I'm like, I have no clue. I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> but do you ever feel that way? You, do, you, do you ever feel like there's times where you can't help out, you feel pretty useless at things? What about as a Christian? You ever feel that? You ever ask yourself, well, how could God use me? How could God ever use me? Because you ask yourself this because you know who you are. You know the things that you've done. You know what you've done in your life. And you ask, how could God use me? Or you may think to yourself, well, I'm, I'm a nobody. You know, I'm, I'm not really, I'm not important. I'm not done anything special in my life. I, I'm just trying to get through it day by day, and how could God use me? And yet, he used those shepherds who were so low, considered so low, unclean, whatever. And they were, they were able to spread the good news of Jesus' birth. And if you think about it, you know, all throughout history, God has used people who you would question that. He's used people in Israel's history view, think about it, to further his kingdom. I'm just going to go through a few because I'm always fascinated when I do something like this. Because if you think about some of the heroes of our faith, like if you go to Hebrews chapter 11 and you go through that list of heroes of the faith, just list them out. You know, you think about Noah. Noah built the ark by faith when God told him to. God was saving humanity through this man and his family. Rescued them from the coming destruction of the flood. Right? Hero of the faith, Noah. What happened after the flood? He planted a vineyard, and he got blackout drunk to a point where he passes out exposed in his tent. What about Abraham? Abraham, the father of the Israelites, who God makes a covenant promise with. But he doesn't wait on God's promise, right? He sleeps with his wife's maidservant to have a child. And he lies about his wife being his sister when they're in Egypt. Twice, I think. What about Moses? Moses leads God's people out of captivity and slavery in Egypt. And he leads them for, for so many years. Moses murdered an Egyptian. Rahab hid spies from Israel as they came to the promised land. She's even honored enough to be mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. And she was a prostitute. David was king of Israel. God says, it's a man after my own heart. And it's from his line that the Messiah would come. David committed adultery and arranged for her, her husband to be murdered. He's murdered. Think about the apostles of Jesus. These are just regular guys. Fishermen, tax collector. Nobody likes tax collectors. There was a zealot, basically trained to fight. And there was a traitor. And yet, through these ordinary men, or through 11 of them, 
Christianity spread through the world. Think about Paul. Paul was a Pharisee. He was committed to destroy what he called the sect of Christianity. And he gave approval to Stephen's execution and probably many others. And yet he became the apostle to the Gentiles or the non-Jewish people. And he helped the gospel of Jesus move west into Rome. And from Rome spread. These are just a few of the people in the Bible. But as you read scripture, you're going to see the same thing, that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. He uses people to further his kingdom. And no matter what you've done, no matter who you think you are, God can use you. And I'm a living testament to this. I've talked about it before, but when I started coming back to the church, I was an atheist in college. I left the faith. When I started coming back to church, I, we were meeting at the old church building over there, and I thought I, my feet were going to catch fire walking through the door. Because I knew who I was. I knew what I had done. And I really, I was like, I'm not, I don't need to go back to church. And I would never, ever have thought I'd be up here preaching the gospel every week. Never would have thought that. I am painfully shy. <laughs> and, like, that is, it is, uh, it's wild that I stand here today preaching God's word. He can use you too. Even if you don't feel like he can use you. He can. I mean, he's God. He can do pretty much anything. And what a privilege it is for us that God would use us to further his kingdom, to tell people the good news, to help others become disciples, to take care of each other, to build each other up. And God will use us, sometimes in ways that we never thought were going to be possible, that we would never even imagine. You think those fishermen thought that they were going to be used to change the world? They were probably just hoping to have a good day's catch so they could live another day. He will use us. We've got to humble ourselves and let it. And he can do amazing things through you and me. Ordinary people. Just so long as we follow him and let him do that. And that's the thing too, like, we got to follow him. We've got to answer the call to follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To live a life worthy of that calling. And this is a good time of year to think about these things. Because it's the time where we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father... Lord, I am so thankful that you have chosen us to hear this message. I'm so thankful that you have shown us that all throughout history that you will use ordinary people to do extraordinary things in your will and in your, in your uh, discretion 
how you lead us. Help us, Lord, to humble ourselves, not think too highly of ourselves, but to to humble ourselves to follow your lead because that's how it's going to be best. Lord, we're so thankful for Jesus, so thankful for the birth of our Savior. But we know that 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 birth came with an ultimate conclusion that was going to be death on a cross. And even that was an act of humility by your son, Lord, to take our sin and pay for it on a cross. And Father, that is what we are most thankful for, that we have a way to return to you. That things were broken and you've put the plan in place to fix them. And that plan included the cross. So as we come around the table of communion, we take the time to remember the symbols that Christ gave us, the bread representing his body, which was broken for us. The juice, which symbolizes the blood that was spilled for us. But we also rejoice in the fact that though Jesus died, three days later, he rose again. We thank you, Lord. And I pray that our our prayer as a congregation is that you would use us for your kingdom here in Bloomington and Martinsville, Ellettsville, all the surrounding areas. Help us to be a shining light for your kingdom, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.